Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. What role does evidence play in your faith? We can't say that everything depends on evidence or that evidence is everything. In fact, if you have too much evidence, faith dies. You don't need faith if you have enough clear scientific proof. Doubting Thomas, in fact, required too much evidence. He wanted to see the risen Lord and to place his finger in the hole and to touch the wound at his side, and unless he had that evidence, his faith would not grab on to the testimony of his resurrection. And Jesus very kindly gave him that much evidence, but made it clear that was too much. Jesus said, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen, who don't have this degree of evidence, and yet have believed. They're blessed because they have more faith than those who see. Paul, the apostle, in fact, puts these two things, this seeing, this evidence, and faith in contrast to each other in some way. He says, for we walk by faith and not by sight, also known as evidence. Or again, Paul says, now hope that is seen is not hope. Who hopes for what he sees? Who believes in something you already see? You don't have to. So evidence is not everything. For faith to be faith, there has to be some gap in the evidence. It's essential. Faith has to go beyond the evidence. But evidence is something. And we know that if for no other reason than that scripture gives us evidence. Even in our text today. And it's not for no reason. This is nowhere truer than when we come to the resurrection of our Lord. When Paul was writing to the Corinthians about the resurrection, he said this is what he passed on to them. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. But it goes on. And that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. Note. Though some have fallen asleep, then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Why mention all the appearances of Jesus? Why not merely say that I delivered to you that he died, was buried, and was raised on the third day, full stop? It's in the Bible and it's presenting evidence. Lots of people saw the resurrected Jesus. Now, you and I know that evidence, while it doesn't mean everything, it has to mean something at least because you probably know people who have a powerful faith without evidence in the wrong direction. So, there are Muslims who this moment would die for Muhammad even though there's not sufficient evidence to prove his claims. Or again... Catholicism holds fast to Mary as the queen of heaven. But that lacks evidence. The faith is there for sure. 
But the evidence, no. So evidence must mean something when it comes to faith. So evidence isn't everything. There has to be some lack for there even to be faith. But evidence isn't nothing either. I suppose that one way we can think of evidence when it comes to our faith is as if it were the very beginnings of a bridge. And you begin to walk out on this bridge over the water and you're moving in this direction. But at some point the bridge just breaks off and there is a yawning gap between you and the other shore. That beginning of the bridge in a sense is like evidence. It means something. It points you in the right direction. It says go this way. But at some point you come to the end of the bridge because God will not provide enough evidence to get all the way across to fellowship with him. And so at some point... In order for you to make bridge that gap the rest of the way, faith is necessary. And it has to be a God-given faith in the heart that keeps you going in the same direction as the evidence, but takes you all the way to the other shore so that you have a relationship with God. Not enough evidence, not enough bridge to carry you across, but it's important that the beginning is there and it moves in the right direction. This morning, Luke is offering to you, to you, evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It will not be enough evidence. If you want scientific, falsifiable, validated proof according to modern standards, it's not enough. It's not meant to be enough or there wouldn't have to be faith. But if you're looking for the beginning of the bridge that's moving in the right direction, then that's what you're provided with. An evidence that's not everything, but that is something. And our prayer is that this would come beside and support the faith that we have from God. Let's see the evidence we're provided with for the resurrection. It's in Luke 24, and we're beginning today in verse 9. And returning from the tomb... They told all these things to the eleven, it's the apostles, and to all the rest. Who is it? Here. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale and they did not believe them. But... Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves. And he went home marveling at what had happened. Why are these few lines in your Bible? They are there to provide you with evidence. Now, if at this moment you do not believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, then Luke, 2,000 years ago as a historian, is providing these for you as a sort of bridge where you can begin to walk and to see this direction. It won't be enough, but it will point you in the direction of truth. And if this morning you do believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, then this evidence is here to support your faith so that you can look back from the other shore and see, yes, I have followed the trail in the direction that the evidence leads, even if it was faith that carried me all the way. The kind of evidence that Luke is giving in this text is the same kind of evidence that we demand for any historical event 
when we want to know whether it really took place or not. For example, you want to know if there was more than one person who witnessed it. If it was only one person, perhaps it was made up. When you Google some event that has taken place, if you find one and only one article with no confirmation from anyone else, you will doubt whether the article is true. So you are looking for number. You're looking for multiple attestation. Multiple people saying this happened. What Luke also provides, we demand of other things. Even if several people say something happened, you might ask, what's their motivation? Is there money involved? Personal prestige? Is there a reason for this person to twist the truth? Or is it likely this person is telling the facts? So you look not only for number, you're looking for motivation. And you also are looking for what we call proximity or closeness to the event. You want to know the person writing about that have they interviewed eyewitnesses? Were they an eyewitness? Have they gone to the source? Or are they just repeating what other people have said? The strongest evidences for any historical event, when you try to confirm it, are these very things. Number, motivation, proximity or nearness to the event. And in this text, those are the very things that Luke is providing for you. To give you a platform for your faith to go forward. Saying this is reasonable to go in this direction. So we're going to walk with Luke then at least the length of the bridge that is there. We're going to follow the evidence that he has provided for us in scripture here. As a historical document even. Since he's constructed it. And we're going all the time though. To keep our eyes heavenward even while we walk. Because we are aware that at the end of the day this evidence. It's important. It's something. But it's not everything. It's not enough for you or for me. Or for people you love. Whom you want to know Christ. We are looking for the hand of God. To take us by faith and lead us the rest of the way. But the evidence means something obviously. Because here it is. So let's walk with Luke the length of the bridge. And let's follow him in those three things. Number, motivation, proximity. So let's begin where the text begins, which is number. You probably remember that even the law of God's people in the Old Testament required that when it came to a capital case, one witness was not enough. There had to be two or three. This is from Deuteronomy 7, 6. On the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses, the one who's to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. You understand that the person could be guilty of a capital offense even if there only was one witness. But the problem is there's no way to clearly prove it. And therefore no capital punishment. So it says if however there are two witnesses or it adds three even better. You can believe the testimony, even if you weren't there, so much so that you could put a person to death. That's why false testimony is such a horrible thing. Now look at our text with that in your mind, and skip to verse 10. Now it was Mary Magdalene, one, and Joanna, two, and Mary the mother of James, three, and if that's not enough... The other women with them, six, ten, I don't know, who told these things to the apostles. How many eyewitnesses of the empty tomb 
are delivering this message to the apostles and therefore to us today. How many? Not one. It wouldn't work if there's one. If you have a single lonely Muhammad in a cave conveying everything or Joseph Smith alone seeing the tablets, it's not sufficient even to confirm something historically. But scripture, Christianity, it's not that way. The testimony, the number of those giving the testimony is not one. It is many people. And therefore, though not perfectly, to some extent, historically verifiable, at least as a likelihood. And so you have even Luke, as a historian, providing for you names. Notice, he doesn't name all the other women. Why even name these women? It's sort of an abrupt interruption to the story that we're reading. Now, these are their names, and he names the three because this is evidence, and you need to know the specific identities of the women who are vouching for this testimony. When this was first written, it's most likely that these women were still alive. The early church, when they received a letter like this, or Theophilus, as he's reading this, could theoretically go and find these two Marys, or Joanna, or the other women, but these three who are named, and ask them if it were true. Not just some invented fable. It's they. They, not she, not he. They tell the apostles that they have seen an empty tomb. Notice even there are these other women. It's a number of persons who are all confirming, like a number of articles on Google, Number of news articles, don't just always go with the first one. You've got a number of them that are confirming the same story. That's important. And there are probably these women still alive when this is written. This is the same reason in that passage we read from Paul where he says that Jesus appeared to 500 brothers. 500 at one time. And then he says, most of whom are still alive. Paul, why do we care if they're still alive? Because when Paul first wrote that to Corinth... You could go ask them. You could go talk to eyewitnesses of the risen, living Jesus. Now, could they all be wrong? Sure. But the likelihood is getting smaller and smaller, even historically. There's a number of witnesses at that time still alive. Now, if this was a conspiracy with hundreds of people conspiring together to pretend that Jesus had appeared to them... Very well, but that's unlikely. That's pretty difficult. It's pretty difficult to get that number to participate, especially when everyone wants to kill you for that testimony. And yet they held to it even to death. Luke adds another detail in our text, which is supporting the resurrection by number. That's in verse 9 now, if you go back. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things. There are the eyewitnesses. But they told them to the eleven... And to all the rest. This point, the 11, that's the 12 disciples, now apostles, minus Judas. So there's 11. But also it says to all the rest. All the rest who? All the rest of Jesus' disciples in Jerusalem. And at Pentecost, some months later, there will be at least 120 of these disciples in the upper room. So we don't know the number at this point. It's probably more rather than less, still there for the Passover, I imagine. This is a large number of disciples, and Luke specifically says, not some, he says, all the rest. He's 
emphasizing that when the women came, the eyewitnesses, multiple eyewitnesses to an empty tomb, they didn't just come and tell one person. They came and told all the eleven and all of Jesus' disciples in Jerusalem at the time. Dozens of people. This was not something like Paul told to Festus, done in a corner. This was something very public with a number of people involved. That's evidence. They're the ones who recounted in Scripture. Some have wondered if Jesus really came and died and resurrected, then why isn't there more testimony to Jesus in ancient writings of that time? But that sort of a question, again, deals with number. Why aren't there unbelievers testifying that this major event now that's shaped Western history, why aren't they talking about it? It's sort of a misunderstanding of history and of the ancient world. For Number one, you and I, for the most part, we read and we write. It's no problem. They estimate that every day thousands of books are published in our world today. Thousands. And you can go and buy those and read those. In the ancient world, there was much more illiteracy. Most people didn't read or write. There were exceptions. But most people are not reading or writing. And the only people who are writing texts that we have today, they tend to be great men because we don't have any of the originals. They've dissipated. We have copies. So if you're copying a work, you're not copying some no-name work. You're copying something written by a great man to great men. They have to be able to read. They have to be great enough to be copied. So it's actually really unlikely that some localized event in Palestine, a conquered Roman territory, is going to be written about at all. The amazing thing actually is that it is talked about in ancient documents of the time. That's more remarkable than that it's not talked about more. Jesus and some details of his life, his death, and his followers are recounted by a handful of different historical non-Christian persons who lived about that time. The Jewish historian Josephus, not a Christian, mentions Jesus at least once, maybe twice, Roman historians that you've maybe heard of, like Tacitus or Suetonius, both mention Jesus and his followers and some details about him. The Jewish Talmud, set very stridently against Jesus and his followers, also talks about Yeshua. So the number of those testifying of Jesus, not just multiple women at the tomb, not just multiple people they've talked to in Jerusalem, then ballooning out from there, but even unbelievers of the ancient world have testified about Jesus. So much so that you would be really hard-pressed today, maybe in the past, but you would be really hard-pressed today to find any respectable scholar, unbeliever or believer, who would give any credence to the idea that Jesus didn't actually exist. Most everyone agrees. Because just historically, it's clear. The other details, those are argued. So the first historical evidence Luke's providing has to do with number. A number of women alive when he wrote. A number of disciples told about it. So the facts that Jesus lived, was tried and crucified, that his followers believed he rose from the dead, those are almost indisputable. No matter who you are. But that does leave the possibility, doesn't it, that those who believed he rose from the dead were wrong. Or that they invented this tale for some reason. So now we have to move past number that Luke has provided and ask the question of motivation. 
What motivated them? Is there good reason for us today to believe that the original witnesses of these things invented the story they're telling? It's motivation. Let's look at verse 11. The women told the 11 apostles about the empty tomb, quote, but these words seemed to them an idle tale and they did not believe them. If you're willing, for a moment for the sake of argument, come with me and just imagine that they had made this story up. Now we're asking the question, why? Let's assume first that the apostles themselves made this up. They were the ones who were spreading this message more than anyone else. I think almost everyone would agree with that. They're the most fervent testifiers that Jesus rose from the dead. The historical consensus is that they all, or almost all, of them died because they were testifying that Jesus rose from the dead. So let's ask the question, why would they make this up? Is it very likely that they would have invented these accounts, including the resurrection, and we're stuck in a difficult place if we're assuming it's not true because the Gospels present the disciples, the apostles, in a very bad light. <laughs> Most of the laughing that we've done in the last two years has been about the apostles. These disciples who have blundered, failed, failed to believe, failed to understand time and again. And we've sort of laughed at them. And yet, even when you come to the resurrection, they're still presented in a very terrible light. When the women bring the news of the empty tomb, our text tells us that they thought that was an idle tale and they misbelieved. They refused to believe in the most important piece of doctrine in what would later become Christianity, their very message, that which they would die for. At first, they didn't believe it. They dismissed it. If the disciples, the apostles are responsible for inventing the story of the resurrection, the story of Jesus... Why do they present themselves in such a bad light? If Peter, the chief of the apostles, is working with the others in some kind of an ancient conspiracy to put together a message to start a movement, then why has he made as a very significant part of that story his own three-time denial of Jesus after which he goes out and weeps? It's not a good way to start a movement. And I promise you that's the case because look at any other movement that's been invented in the world. Look at cults. Look at major world religions. Where do you find the people upon whom the entire movement depends presenting themselves as failures and buffoons many times? It's their primary characteristic. The disciples disbelieve and fail more than they succeed in the stories that they supposedly invented. And that's true as well at this story of the resurrection. If you're trying to start some major movement, this is definitely not the way to do it. To say that you failed all the way across. Is this how, take an example, is this how Muhammad presents himself? Muhammad's very name means the praised one. And that's in reference, of course, to Allah. But there have been Muslim thinkers who are not ashamed to say that applies in some way to Muhammad as well. How is Muhammad revered and viewed? How did he present himself as he was formulating Islam? Very positively. Very positively. And if you meet a Muslim today, when they say Muhammad's name, they always follow with peace be upon him. 
always. There is respect given to Muhammad. Muhammad did not write the Quran filled with examples of his own personal failures. It's just not the way it is. Because he was starting a movement. Now you might object that Catholicism, a form of Christianity, has at least today come to sort of venerate on the edge of worshipping the apostles. But from the beginning it was not this way. That's an aberration. That shouldn't have happened. That's not the way the disciples present themselves. That's not the way they wrote it. If they were writing this and inventing it out of their heads, that's not the way they presented themselves. And you know, because you were with me for two years, if you were, you've seen how they present themselves. It is not like that. Joseph Smith can present himself positively. Muhammad can present himself positively. Take any movement. The people who invent it present themselves positively. And there's one exception. And you're looking at it right now. So why, in terms of motivation, with the apostles, if they're inventing this on a blank slate, make themselves out, if it didn't happen, to be buffoons? You might say, well, maybe the apostles didn't make this up, but later Christians made this up. It'd have to be pretty early because we've got very early documents of biblical texts, but other Christians, a sort of Bart Ehrman, if you know him, sort of early corrupting of Christianity. So was it other Christians? But that leads us to sort of the same problem. If you're starting a movement, let's say you're not the apostles, but you're early Christians and the whole world hates you, the Roman Empire, your Jewish community, all are set against you. They don't believe the testimony you're bringing of the resurrection or the life of Jesus. And you're saying, we know it's true because the apostles told us. And they say, who are the apostles? And you say, buffoons. <laughs> Failures, mostly who, if you disbelieve, well, they disbelieved at first too. <laughs> it puts us again in a difficult place. Because there has to be some, if you're just going to be historical about it, what's the motivation for presenting the disciples so negatively, so in such a self-deprecating way? Maybe to present them as humble, but it's really self-deprecating. And it's not the way to start a movement, not at all. There was enough opposition, enough slander, enough misunderstanding from the world without them, without these early Christian inventors adding to it by presenting their own leaders as failures. So we're stuck in the same hard spot. In terms of motivation, it's really hard, I guess not impossible, but it's really hard to come up with a fairly credible reason for the apostles or the early Christians to invent these sort of stories. And when telling the very tale of the resurrection, to present the disciples as unbelieving. It's worth noting as well, in light of this text, that they did not believe, they thought it was an idle tale, that there have been many people who have made an argument against Christianity like this. They've said the resurrection never actually happened, but all of Jesus' early followers so badly wanted it to happen, so desperately desired their rabbi to come back to life, that they tricked not other people, they tricked themselves. They either had some kind of a hallucination or some kind of wish fulfillment, misinterpreted some details, thought Jesus has resurrected. But if we're going to take the only four historical documents that we have about that event, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, 
They're all united in saying that that was not the attitude of the early disciples. It was just the opposite. They didn't expect Jesus to come out of that tomb. Everyone is surprised that it happened. The women were surprised. They went to anoint a corpse that they just happened not to find. And the apostles on hearing it do not believe. Thomas persists in his unbelief until Jesus shows himself to him. These were not people who were overly gullible. These were hard-lined fishermen who wanted the facts. They wanted to know that this was real and this was true. It's easy for us as modern people today, because we've had a lot of advancements in technology and science, to think that any people in the ancient world were absolutely out of their mind. They were unreasonable. They had no common sense. They would believe anything. It's easy to do that. It's not true. And the early Christians and the early disciples were not expecting Jesus to rise. And they didn't trick themselves into thinking so. Our very text tells us they didn't believe it. They thought it was an idle tale. And lastly, as far as motivation is concerned, if this is an invented story in order to start a movement, why are women the first who see Jesus and see the empty tomb? Because in the ancient world, it's just how it was, not good. It's just how it was. The testimony of women was not accepted as equally valid to the testimony of men. If you were going to invent a story, you would not make women the first people to see the empty tomb. And you definitely wouldn't make them literally the only people to see Jesus crucified, buried, and the empty tomb. They're the ones upon whom the testimony most depends, more than the apostles here. And they are women. You would not make that up if you had free reign. However, if you had a historical account that you felt compelled to tell the truth about, you might present the disciples as buffoons and you might present the very first witnesses as women. That's how far the bridge goes. You can argue that all day. Sure, you can come up with reasons not to, but if you're just following the evidence as Luke presents it here, that's the way the bridge leads. And lastly in our text... Not just is there confirmation by number, confirmation by looking at the motivation of those making these claims, but now proximity or nearness to the event itself. It's one of the questions we ask when you're told about some event and it seems a little hard to believe. You say, did you see that happen? You want to know if they've just been told about it and are sort of repeating what they've heard. If this is the mutated version of the story at the end of the game of telephone? You want to know if that's the case or if this person actually saw what took place? What's the proximity? What's the nearness to the event? When we look at verse 12, this comes out. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves and he went home marveling at what had happened. Why Peter should go to the tomb when he doesn't believe? I don't know. Do you know? You don't know. Nobody knows. But he does. Maybe there's the smallest bit of faith there. But he does go. He runs there. And the gospel of John tells us that the apostle John, the beloved, he was also with Peter. They were both running to the tomb. John was faster. Good job, John. He got there first, but Peter went in first. And then John, it's specific and detailed. No reason to make this stuff up. 
It's because that's how it happened. He was a faster runner. That's why he records it that way. And he looks in. Peter goes in. Then John goes in. They see the cloths and they see the headdress wrapped up by itself. This is something that historically took place. And it's immensely important for us today that Peter, chief of the apostles, these men who are going to carry this message of the resurrection, it's important that they weren't just second-handers. The women, there are multiple, yes, but it's important that the apostles themselves, there needs to be among their number those who actually witnessed this. We need a proximity. It's not enough to say, well, we heard this was the case. No, we need them to be eyewitnesses of an empty tomb, and that's what happens. That's why Luke presents it here this way. It's important that he rose and ran. History would be different if he stayed seated, but he rose, he ran to the tomb, and he saw that it was empty. This again lessens the likelihood of the women making something up. Again, they could have if you want to argue that way. But the likelihood gets less and less the more number of diverse persons there are seeing and testifying to what they've seen. He becomes, which is necessary here, an eyewitness of the resurrection. And we'll see that Jesus will literally appear to his apostles soon. But just to give an added confirmation for you, Luke notes, that he also saw the empty tomb. How close was Peter to the events he later is going to proclaim and die for? What was his proximity to the events he's talking about and that he bears witness to of us, for us? He was there. He was literally there inside the tomb and he saw. Yes, eyewitnesses can get things wrong. They often get things wrong. That's again why you need a number of eyewitnesses, which we have for Christianity. But even that being the case, to this day, eyewitness testimony is the most important kind of testimony when we're establishing that something actually happened. Today we have security cameras. That's a kind of eyewitness testimony they didn't have. But think of how a security camera, not perfectly, but it can sort of seal a case. Because you see what's going on. And courts today, of course, call witnesses still. It's not changed. If you want to know if something happened, you need eyewitness testimony. And Luke is telling you in this text today, you have it. You want a security camera of the resurrection? Peter is your security camera. He looked with his eyes at the empty tomb. And he's the one who has testified to these things. This is why Peter could write in his second letter in the New Testament, we, apostles, did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And that apostle standing beside him at the tomb in our text, John, he could write at the beginning of his first letter of the New Testament, that which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon and have touched with our hands. Evidence concerning the word of life, that which we've seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. There is a proximity. We've not just heard about these things. They're not cleverly devised myths. We were there. We saw his life. We saw his death. We see his resurrection. So the question is, 
Where are you this morning? Are you on the evidence that this, that's been built into a sort of beginning of a bridge? Can you see this sort of reasonable direction that's been given? Christianity does not require you to reject common sense and logical reasoning to take this leap of faith that makes no sense whatsoever, but to follow in the track of the absurd just because God says, believe. It's not true. If that were true, why do we have Luke 24 verses 1 through 12? Why is it there? There's no reason for this. It could just be a proposition. Jesus rose. But Luke is offering, and God through Luke is offering to you, Evidence to show you that this is reasonable to believe, even on historical grounds. And yet, God leaves off building the bridge so that the last part of it has to be faith. Not a blind faith, not a faith in a flying spaghetti monster, or some Santa Claus, or someone on another planet. It's not some kind of unreasonable faith with no basis whatsoever. And yet, it is faith. Because the evidence leads you in this direction and then stops. And you may this morning be standing at the edge of this bridge. You see the evidence. This makes sense. Perhaps you've seen the transformed lives of Christians around you. You've seen things that make you believe there is a God. That this is the direction to go. That Jesus is the son of the living God. That he is what he claimed to be. And yet, there is that final leap to fully accept that. To embrace everything that Christ claims. And that must be a God-given faith. And if that's where you are, then scripture calls you. God extends a hand to you from heaven and says, Belief, and you will see the power of God. The problem is, you'll leave here, the world, your flesh, and the devil himself, there is a conspiracy there. They will all conspire to prevent you from believing the evidence. They will try to present to you faith on this side, reason on this side. And if you want to believe, you must discard all that is reasonable. But that's not the war that's happening, I promise you. The war is between your own sinful desires that don't want to believe this is true and that skew the evidence and the evidence. It's reason against you, not reason against faith. And if reason wins, you believe. Because that's the direction that the evidence leads. It takes you in that direction. Not all the way, but in that direction. Bertrand Russell's cry that he will say to God, not enough evidence, God, is not enough of a statement. It's not going to work. There's sufficient evidence. It's presented. It's set in the text. It's set in the world. Your own bodies and ecosystem. Everything is pointing you every day in this direction. It's just the bridge doesn't go all the way. And Bertrand Russell, as many do, wanted it to go all the way and would not believe if it didn't. But there's no worldview where the bridge goes all the way. At some point, you have to exercise faith. And you have to decide what you're going to believe. This morning, these three women, they walked the bridge that way and believed. And today are in paradise. The apostles and all the rest, they Believed even to the point of sword and cross. They testified that the resurrection was true. And that other woman, not in our text, but Martha, when she doubted that Jesus could effect a resurrection for her brother, Jesus said to her what he says to you this morning. Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? 
and I add my testimony to the rest that these things are so. Let's pray. Lord, we leave in your hand the right and prerogative to take faith and drive it into the human heart. It's not there natively. Natively, we are in rebellion against you, God, and deserve any judgment you should bring upon us. But you offer us a full salvation through this man who is not in that tomb, who has defeated death and sin, its sting, its power, the guilt of it, the strength of it. You've taken it away. You've cut its hair like Samson's and you offer all of this to us now by faith in Christ. And my plea with you, Lord, is that this morning for those who are here who are not in Christ, that you would push them over the edge of the bridge, drive them by faith across to the other shore that they might have fellowship with you and with your son, Jesus Christ, which only occurs through faith. And I plead for your people. We live in a hostile day and many doubt the truth of your word. And we at times doubt also, like the disciples. But you have given us everything we need for life and godliness through your word, by the power of your spirit, and I pray you would prove that to us by giving us a strong and an unflinching faith, one that can stand alone and one that can stand against the whole currents of the entire world and can face sword and fire, peril, lion, cross, and still believe and proclaim that Christ has, in fact, risen from the dead. We pray you'd grant us this faith if we should face persecution in the years to come. Lord, let us smile at the future like the woman in Proverbs 31 because we have faith in Christ and hope for the life to come. And if we should have an easy life and our liberties be preserved and things go the way we want them to go, even in our own lives, Lord, protect us from the guilt of Jeshurun who grew fat and kicked. Help us not to become complacent and Allow the resurrection to sink away into unbelief so that it doesn't change our lives. Lord, let us live in light of the resurrection, that of our Savior and that of our own, which will come. I pray these things for the sake of your great name. Amen. Amen.